everybody must be accorded his full political rights. Please be advised that this podcast is meant for educational and informational purposes only. Hi there, my name is Larry Kweiradai and this is Mugabe and me. In the first episode of Mugabe and Me, I introduced the three-part podcast exploring my complex relationship with the late former Zimbabwe president Robert Gabriel Mugabe. Now, I am not here to pass judgment on Mugabe, but aim to share my personal experiences and observations. The episode touched on Mugabe's commanding presence, the multifaceted perception of him, and my encounter with him at a young age. I provided a TLDR on Mugabe's background detailing his family's struggles and early life, I explored Mugabe's isolation, education, and his pivotal time at Fort Hare, where he was introduced to Marxism. The episode also covered Mugabe's political awakening in the 1940s and 1950s, his relationships, and his arrest by the Ian Smith regime in 1964. I delved into Mugabe's personal challenges, including the illness and death of his son, Namo Zenika, while he was in prison. The episode concluded with Mugabe's release in 1974, his leadership of ZANU and the Lancaster House Conference that led to Zimbabwe's independence in 1980. In this second episode, I will explore Mugabe's governance through the lens of his early successes with health and education, then the land issue and the economy in general. So join me again in this complex labyrinth as I continue to unravel my view of the life and legacy of Robert Gabriel Mugabe in this episode of Mugabe and Me. Now, just for some clarity, Mugabe was prime minister and then president for a full 37 years, and I lived through 36 of those because, well, I wasn't there for the first one. So I will not necessarily go into detail on some of his policies because there are a lot of them and much of them are in the public domain. Now, I will touch on Mugabe's concerted drive to push his ideology expressed through the economy right up to and past the empowerment movement of the 2000s as actually stemming from the 1990s. A lot of that goes from this particular episode into the third. Mugabe may have come across as an avowed Marxist, having been convinced of his virtues while at Fort Hare University. We talked about that in the first episode. But was he really, or was it mostly rhetoric? Well, I will let you be the judge of that. You see, Mugabe inherited a very privatized economy, schools, health services, and all. His, ma his mantra, however, was always Zimbabwe is for Zimbabweans. Let the Commonwealth also hear that Zimbabwe is for Zimbabweans. And that Zimbabwe, being a free and independent country, cannot brook interference with its sovereignty. Now, if you listen to the first episode, that might have left you a little bit confused. Now, the speech that we just played came from a more radicalized Zimbabwe after the land resettlement had started. And you see, the focus of the liberation struggle was land, with the one man, one vote drive as the attainment and defense of land ownership. But a Lancaster House agreement had to say that land could only be transferred to the majority blacks via a willing buyer, willing seller system, at least for the first 10 years. 
with financial support from the British government. For a significant period, that did not happen to a sufficient status. But that will come up later. As Prime Minister, Mugabe may have found himself at loggerheads with his belief system. Or maybe he was just being tactical in his approach. You see, stoic and masterful a politician perhaps, Mugabe got down to the work of creating something of a social services revolution in the 1980s. One of Mugabe's early successes was in education. A much-traveled teacher himself, it was almost natural for him to have that as the cornerstone of his first policies. But first, a bit of a background so we can understand just how bad it was at independence. Bear with me because this is important. In 1980, less than 5% of the black children in Zimbabwe had access to free basic education. Free education for blacks usually came from mission schools. To show how dire it was, Fei Chung, first a deputy secretary for administration in the Ministry of Education from 1980 to 1988, and then Minister of Education in Mugabe's cabinet from 1988 to 1993, said, What has happened is that 20 or 30 years ago, very few children were in school. For example, when I taught at Harare Secondary, we were accepting 4% of the grade 7 pupils, and the grade 7 pupils themselves represented less than 50% of the year groups, so actually we were accepting 2% of the year group. The number of children who got as far as grade 3 or 4 was very small. So when you look at the situation and describe the standard of education, you're talking about a standard which applied to only 2%. This is from an interview with the Human Resources Research Center, which opened in January 1988 and is based in the University of Zimbabwe's Faculty of Education. The interview itself was conducted in 1989. So given that situation at independence, what did Mugabe's government do? Well, the new constitution declared education as a basic right. So the first thing to go was all tuition fees for primary schools. 17.3% of the national budget was allocated to education and overnight the number of children in schools went from 880,000 to 1.3 million. There was such an acceleration in enrollment that for years after independence, the country practiced hot seating in significant parts of the country due to an infrastructure deficit. Hot seating is when education is offered in halves. Some classes come in the morning and others in the afternoon. Now, I remember living through that particular period and it was, I guess, an experience. It was neither interesting or uninteresting because at that age, everything is just normal. I quite enjoyed school, but what I did not particularly care for was when friends from other classes were placed in a different hot seating period. I might have picked up the habit of working all sorts of hours from that, really. Still, the investment in infrastructure was significant, with a 73.3% increase in the number of primary schools, while secondary schools went up by an eye-popping 537.8%. By 1993, primary education coverage sat at an impressive Mugabe also scored his early successes on the healthcare front. 
You see, the system inherited at independence was top-heavy, catering mostly for the white Rhodesians. A few days after independence, he announced that there would be free health care for everyone earning 150 Zimbabwe dollars a month or less. That amounted to 60 British pounds. This was the majority of the population of Zimbabwe. Zimbabwe also joined the World Health Organization, or WHO, and started a close cooperation which uh, persists to this day. The benefits have been seen when it comes to, for example, Zimbabwe getting rid of wild polio in 1986, and it will not return again during his long rule. This was part of many vaccine initiatives, and I remember as a child getting jammed. And many Zimbabweans can be identified to this day by the scar on the outer upper right arm. Because there was not much existing, really. A lot of infrastructure had to be built from scratch. And from a report by the WHO in 1996, investment in primary health care infrastructure, that is clinics and health centers, resulted in 85% of population being within one hour's travel time to the nearest health facility. This was captured by Norman Yazema, professor and research associate in Health, University of Limpopo. Uh, this initiative by the government was called Equity in Health and Primary Healthcare. Of course, we would not be sitting here if the story remained the same. The devaluation of the Zimbabwe dollar, an unsophisticated agro-based income, and instances of corruption affected what money could continue to be spent by Treasury. The 1993 we talked about earlier, so fondly, came about just after the introduction of the International Monetary Fund-backed Economic Structural Adjustment Program, or ESAP, which did little to help the situation. Zimbabwe had moved away from the Rhodesia protectionist policies to more open markets. Some of those policies that had been imported from the Smith era allowed white farming, industry and mining to continue, while the state focused on social services such as health and education. Add to that guaranteed cheap credit and the protection of a domestic industry from foreign competition. Growth was therefore modest. But ESAP came in and upset all of that. There were foreign exchange shortages. Economists blamed subsidies for stifling innovation and increased spending on uh, social services and the civil service pushed taxes up. To restructure the economy, Zimbabwe had to pay most of the bill, as Mugabe explained to George H.W. Bush during a visit to Washington in 1991. Zimbabwe is implementing an economic reform program of the $16 billion needed to finance this five-year program, 125 billion dollars will come from within Zimbabwe. The remaining 3.5 must be mobilized from external sources. ISAP couldn't have had the worst timing. First, there was a global recession that came all the way until 1991-92, so the demand for Zimbabwe's raw materials was very low. So the South Africans had cancelled a trade agreement with Zimbabwe. Droughts ravaged Zimbabwe in 1985 and 1995. Also, 
liberalization of the economy was done recklessly, possibly because the competence for such an endeavor simply did not exist in the government. Such a change to that economy, which for decades knew only one way, and to swing from one to another almost uh, overnight, was naive at best and incompetent at worst. So the poor sequencing of reforms was always going to be a factor. Simply leaving local companies to the ravenous adventures of the well-heeled foreign multinationals was a recipe for disaster. Now, of course, the narrative has always been that the people around Mugabe may have failed him, but ultimately it was his call, and judging from how he had seemed as, as he grew up and through later life, he was, if nothing else, a man of fastened to his convictions. In other news, stubborn. All of the above said structural adjustment programs had little success across the world, and particularly Africa. Their design was uh, clearly to serve capital interests, reducing the cost of raw material by opening them up to external exploitation while decimating local production systems. The local cost of production having gone I meant these jobs had to be exported, leaving locals exposed. Widespread retrenchment became the order of the day, and hunger invited disgruntlement. As taxes dropped, the government stopped focusing on health equity to immediate concerns and efficiencies. This also affected the school system as Zimbabweans could scarcely afford to pay fees and levies. This must have been a nightmare for the teacher and Mugabe. Anti-riot police were let out onto the streets with truncheons and tear gas as workers went marching. While all this was happening, the land issue kept pitching up with increasing frequency, and war veterans, those who had fought the liberation struggle, kept asking for compensation. But before we get into that, and before a break, let's just pause for a moment to talk about a lost Mugabe experience. His first wife, Sally Mugabe, sadly died on 27 January 1992 due to kidney failure. The late Alex Magaisa wrote of Sally, Without children of her own, Sally doted on young children, particularly orphans for whom she established a charity. One of her marquee projects after independence was the Child Survival and Development Foundation, established to look after the welfare of children. Her love for children was legendary, cementing a title as Amai Mugabe. Land invasions became common, and often asked question is why Zimbabwe had not taken his land after the 10-year expiry of the Lancaster House Agreement. Well, former South Africa President uh, Thabo Mbeki said Zimbabwe agreed to a suggestion by the then Commonwealth Secretary-General Chief Emeka Anyawoku not to undertake any program to implement radical land reform in 1990, said Mbeki. Chief Anyawoku and the Commonwealth Secretariat feared that any radical land redistribution in Zimbabwe at that stage would frighten white South Africa and thus uh, significantly complicate our own process of negotiations. 
President Mugabe and the Zimbabwe government agreed to Chief Anyawoku's suggestion and therefore delayed for almost a decade the needed agrarian reform, which had been a central objective of the political and armed struggle of the liberation of Zimbabwe. End quote. And so, by Mbegi's words, the Zimbabwe government had every intention of starting its radical processes earlier. However, things changed after South Africa got its majority government elections. Mbegi adds, Unfortunately, contrary to what the Conservative Party Prime Ministers Margaret Thatcher and John Major had agreed, the Labour Party Tony Blair's Secretary of State for International Development, Claire Short, repudiated the commitment to honour the undertaking made at, at Lancaster House. End quote. In a 1997 letter to Zimbabwe Minister of Agriculture and Land, Kumbirai Kangai, uh, Short wrote, I should make it clear that we do not accept that Britain has a special responsibility to meet the cost of land purchase in Zimbabwe. We are a new government from diverse backgrounds without links to former colonial interests. My own origins are Irish and as you know, we were colonized and not colonizers." End quote. That missive would have riled Harare and at its helm, Mugabe. There were other options that were attempted to finance the land acquisition, but all failed. And I remember it, Mugabe, who had been globetrotting at that time, the man did love his travels, came back and shocked many. Because, you see, at that period, land invasions had been happening and this man was not around. The white farmers had remained confident that while war veterans and others continued to invade land, Mugabe would come back and tell them to get off the land. After all, it was still quite intrinsically linked to the functioning of the economy. I sat 1.8 p.m., I don't quite remember the date, and he had just returned. He may have been at the airport, I remember the back, white background. There were doors in the background. I don't quite remember what it was, but at one time he may have been, you know, thinking I've just become obsessed with the way he traveled. At one time he may have even have circled the whole world at that period. The man did love his travel. Anyway, he came back and pretty much said, well, the people want their land. Mugabe would go on to explain why he took this position, speaking to Jonathan Holmes of ABC News in Death in 1998. If we do not undertake this exercise and resettle the people, the people will uh, resettle themselves entirely on their own. Could this have been Mugabe accepting that for his own political survival, he had to allow the people to stay on the land. After all, this was in, happening in the backdrop of an economy which was not ready for such a seismic shift, or, I guess, in conventional wisdom. It had been teetering after a few shocks, among them a war effort in DRC, the 1997 Black Friday, 14th of November to be specific, when the Zimbabwe dollar crashed by 71.5% against the US dollar in just four hours and the stock market lost 46% of its value after Mugabe ordered a release of a once-off payment in compensation for over 50,000 war veterans. And what a curious time it was, a reaction from the war veterans who found themselves in suddenly in a lot of money. I remember one of the reports of a war vet booking a separate cab for his dog why he rode in another, and that was probably not even the most ridiculous of the lot. 
all of this, well, the backdrop of it was newspapers publishing stories of the abuse of workers on farms by some white farmers. The situation becoming ripe for, you know, a revolution of sorts. Blair Rutherford, in his Carlton University paper titled Commercial Farm Workers and the Politics of Displacement in Zimbabwe, Colonialism, Liberation and Democracy, says... Glimpses of colonial-era attitudes and practices also echoed through the public sphere. Reports of egregious incidents of white farmers or managers mistreating their workers ranged from shooting trespassers to urinating in the mouth of a worker, from demanding the closure of a school in a neighboring farm to denying union officials access to their members. Indeed, the government-controlled media and, to a less extent, the private media, has contributed to this public image of the feudal conditions of farm workers through occasional news stories about the cramped, run-down living quarters on farms, their lack of sanitation and thus high incidence of health problems, as well as farmer abuses and violence towards workers. End quote. This was a turbulent time. A radicalized Mugabe was almost energized by the circumstances he found himself. He was ready to share his global appeal for the land issue, even coining it the Third Chimurenga or War of Liberation. He threw his whole lot in and his competitive nature came to the fore. And we see this perhaps as the influence of his lonely childhood, where he kept a few friends, perhaps that is how we understand this chapter of his life. It is divined by the belief that he had a point to prove and that he was good enough. Uh, Mugabe's most natural setting was an us-against-them attitude. You were either with him or against him. He was not afraid of isolation. After, after all, he was such as a child. And as he Powell drove himself into isolation and siege mentality, he took a whole country with him. And meanwhile, Brewing was a political party which would cause him a headache for much of the next decade and a half. In the final episode, we deal with how he handled opponents, going back even to the 1980s, right until he resigned. In the same episode, I will point out what made his legacy complicated for me. All this and more coming on the third and final episode of Mugabe and Me. My name is Larry Quirirai, and thank you for listening. The theme song is provided by Alexander Nakarada and this is a Three Mob Radio production.